Today on episode number 174 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Laura Gogia shares how to develop learning objectives for the 21st century. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and today I'm welcoming back to the show Laura Gogia. She is an educational consultant, researcher, and designer specializing in program evaluation, digital learning, and higher education. She also has an MD and a PhD. She is the principal for Bandwidth Strategies, where she offers organizational development and creative support for institutions of higher and continuing education. Before that, she was the associate director of the Grace E. Harris Leadership Institute at Virginia Commonwealth University and a liaison for the Virginia Longitudinal Data System at the State Council for Higher Education of Virginia. Gogia earned her doctorate in educational research and evaluation and her medical degree both at VCU. Laura, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. I'm so glad to get to have another conversation with you. This one actually started on Twitter. And you recently went back and reread these tweets. So for people that didn't just happen to be on Twitter that day and see things explode, can you give us a little play-by-play of what happened there? Yeah, so I was uh, sitting my, my, in my home office and I was all lonely and, and wanted to stir up some trouble on Twitter. And so <laughs> I literally just tweeted out something along the lines of, I like learning objectives. And I kind of left it there and it just exploded just the way I knew it would because there are people out there who live and die by learning objectives and there are people who think that they are the work of the devil. And my personal feeling on it is that it's a little bit more complex. It's not even a bi- it's not binary, it's not even a spectrum, but in reality it's everything. And that we need to start accepting that they're good, they're bad, they're everything in between, and we need to be able to move across the levels and think about them in different ways in different scopes. So that's what I was getting at with starting the conversation. But yeah, it kind of exploded pretty, pretty quickly. Speaking of things that are controversial, I started out in corporate training. And so we talked about <laughs> learning objectives a lot. As an instructional designer, we would talk about them a lot. And one of the big things that I can recall from those early conversations was avoiding the use of the word understand. Because, Which is interesting yeah. because you'll hear... Uh, especially in digital humanities, we talk about understand as being one of the good sort of objectives. Yeah. And the reason it, so. in that world, the reason it was frowned upon was that it's so hard to measure that. Mm-hmm. That how would I know if you understood it? And the how would I know if you understood it is what should be backed into the learning objectives. Now, where people would criticize that would be that 
you can't really quantify learning that neatly and tight in a, such a tidy fashion, right? So maybe we can come back to understand and have it be a little bit more nebulous as to whether or not I would know. So it's really, this is a lot of work that goes in. I think where both you and I come from is really it being a lot more nuanced than we tend to talk about it. In fact, I would like to unpack some of the things that you've already said. Oh, please. Because, you know, you're talking about how it's important in corporate. Um, and I completely agree with that. My own experience in the corporate world is those learning objectives are extremely important. And then we moved from that to the assumption that why they're important is for assessment and for measuring learning, mm-hmm. which I agree with you. In this particular sector, that's that's why they're being used. But there are other reasons why those learning objectives could be used too. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that those kind of unspoken assumptions are part that that's part of the big battle. That's why people find learning objectives controversial is how they're they're placing value on them. What are some of the ways that you use them? Because you did come out and say, <laughs> you said there, I said it. <laughs> you yes, did come out and I say that it. you enjoy them. What, what do you find benefits to using them? Well, I, I think we need to look at them in multiple ways. They are certainly important for assessment, but I would say that's actually lower on the list. Um, if we're going in any, any sort of order, and I don't mean a value order, but in a way of organizing it in a way that makes sense to people. I would start with learning objectives are part of a negotiation. Mm. So when are learning objectives created? Typically, they're created by a professor, by a faculty member, before the course started. So it's kind of a way of saying to the class, here's where I I stand. Here's what I think we're trying to achieve. So it's a statement from the faculty member that becomes a meeting place. So it's a concrete way of saying, here's what I'm hoping we're going to get out of it. And then the students can actually come back around to those learning objectives and look at them as like, this what we want from the class? So, you know, it's, it's a place of, of negotiation, a place of communication. Mm. So that's one way to look at learning objectives. And I think that in a lot of the circles that I move in around digital humanities, digital education, that's where they're coming at this from, is that it's not about measuring the learning it's about, here's where I stand, how do you feel about this? Here's what I'm hoping to inspire. This is what I'm hoping to bring to the table. And so that's where words like understand, a learning objective around, I, I, I want us to love this. Mm. I want us to appreciate this. I want us to understand the nuance. I want us to be able to have a conversation about, discuss, describe, that's where the feeling behind those sorts of words come is this idea that this is this is the passion this is what i want to build in my course mm. all right but not very measurable because that's not the primary goal right now if we come at it from the standpoint of these learning objectives are here because this is what we're trying to achieve and i need evidence that it's happening you know, the, court, the, the university needs evidence. We need to be accountable. I need to see whether or not my course is achieving what it needs to achieve, which is it's also a very, very fine 
goal. Okay, we need that. We need to make sure that we're doing good work, right? And that comes through assessment and evaluation and that sort of thing. So from that standpoint, you need, you're focusing on the things that are measurable, which understand to love, to discuss, you know, these are not things that are particularly measurable. So that makes sense too. And then you have people who are just really trying to make sure that they're working at multiple levels. And that's where Bloom's taxonomy comes in, although I think it's frequently overused, misused, you know, it's not being used as a as an inspiration. It's being used as a like you must do these things. Um, but it's it's a way to stir the imagination around, okay, so we need to be able to define things, but we also need to be able to discuss things, like put things together. We need to be able to compare and contrast. We need to be able to critique. We need to be able to cre- uh, create and apply with things. You know, so something like Bloom's taxonomy makes people who are not used to doing instructional design start thinking about all the ways that they can play around with a concept and introduce a concept and have learners be active around a concept. We talked about learning Um, objectives being controversial. Bloom's taxonomy also controversial. But before I talk a little bit about the controversy, and you already shared a bit, but just it was all the way back in 1956 that it was first created by Dr. Benjamin Bloom. And his goal, as you said, was to think more, to challenge us to think in more higher order ways. And to me, this is a great way that Bloom's taxonomy can be used if someone was just used to giving tests that were more memorization type of exams, and they wanted to start to think more creatively about ways that they could assess learning that moving the way up this pyramid would take them all the way from understand, which a lot of tests measure for understanding, then all the way up to the very top, which would be create. And I'm excited. I'm, I'm finally in my doctoral class this fall, going to be doing what I consider a risky create endeavor and going to follow Robin DeRosa's, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name, sorry, Mm -hmm. Robin, but she has a whole post on how to write open textbooks. So I feel like I'm going, you know, all the way to the top of that create on the pyramid to have the class write a textbook this fall. And that's exciting. And it's also scary. We've talked a lot about on the show recently, some of the things that stops us from being more creative and thinking about how we're going to assess learning is that fear we might fail. And it's like, this thing could totally go south. But it's nice because we do have this sort of supportive community, though, around open education where we can experiment. And I, I commented on her post, she already wrote back and I felt like, you know what, I can do this. I can do this. I haven't tried it before. But what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, so the the idea around Bloom's taxonomy can be used really well. But in what ways do you see people using it? Not not as well. I think you talked about it a little bit, but do you have any other examples? Absolutely. And before we move too far, for anyone else who wants to follow Robin DeRosa's work, uh, she's on Twitter a lot uh, under the actual ham <laughs> <laughs> is her is is her um, Twitter name because I, I follow her work closely too. I think the, but getting back to Bloom's, I think probably the most important critique that I have of Bloom's is the fact that it is thought of as a pyramid. So words like understand don't actually have to be under things like create, like less important. Because if you think about it, again, coming from a humanities standpoint, you know, that idea of having passion around something, truly understanding something. What does it mean to understand? 
Well, you have to be able to create with it. You have to be able to understand context and nuance. You know, so it, it, it almost feels like when people are having are being controversial around learning objectives, they're talking past each other. They're not actually debating head to head. It's they have different motivations. So is it about evaluation or is it about stirring up passions? Is it about um, having a negotiation with your students? Those are two very, very different motivations, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're not actually getting on the same page to have the conversation about learning objectives, then it, you're always going to talk past each other and you're always going to have these debates. You know, thinking about understand in the sense of general education, liberal education, the arts, um, you know, the deep meaning of what understand really means, that's going to be a different sort of understand than somebody who's thinking about it at a relatively shallow level of Bloom's taxonomy where we've got this like list of verbs and some of the verbs have been put at a higher level than other verbs. Um, and so personally, I find the pyramid problematic because how you discuss, I think discuss is a level two on Blooms. Discuss, well, is that define or is that truly having a nuanced conversation about learning objectives? I mean, Bonnie, you and me are discussing learning learning objectives right now, but we're pulling from different backgrounds, from different sectors, from different disciplines. I mean, this discussion of Bloom's taxonomy and learning objectives, that's different than um, saying just defining what Bloom's is. For people that didn't get a chance to hear the last episode with you, which of course I'll link to in the show notes, but I'm so fascinated as I watch your face, we're, we're able to see each other right now on Skype. But I'm thinking about your talk about drawing from a history. You are drawing from a history from having been a physician, which to me is, I don't know if it's fair to say that is that all the way on the other side of the spectrum of the more of the humanities piece. I mean, there certainly is lots of crossover. But but I mean, there are. But in this conversation, it helps so much because I can see all sides of the debate mm -hmm. on learning objectives. There are situations where someone needs to know how to put in a catheter or needs to put in an IV, mm -hmm. all right? They don't need to think critically about the IV. They need to get it in quickly, you know? There are situations where those cut and dried learning objectives that then we are going to measure that it makes sense. It's what needs to happen. Those particular situations need those. Then there are other situations where we need to talk more about, you know, critical thinking, about uh, debate, about conversation, about thinking about things from, from different perspectives, about critiquing our orders and then how to deal with that. You know, we need to have those situations too. And I think what happens in higher ed, unfortunately, is that those sorts of classes are very separate most of the time. You have your very skills-based and, and even siloed within programs too. You know, you have very skills-based sorts of courses and mindsets and you have very expansive liberal arts, um, general ed sort of courses. What we need more of are those kind of um, middle mixed experiences where we combine specific skill sets 
in settings that are authentic and con contextualized. And I've been working out this idea around like service learning, for example, is situated learning, right? Um, and we, we all, most people like the idea of the service learning course. It's a high impact practice with the AAC and you, you know, it's, it's, it's important. And I, I like service learning courses. When we think of online, which a lot of my work is done in online settings, we have two camps. We have the people who look at online in a very skills-based sort of way. Here's the tech that all students need to know. Uh, we use online settings because they're asynchronous and accessible and, you know, all those things. We're delivering and content. We are delivering. We're delivering content and yes. it's an online is a way to deliver content. Yes. And honestly, I don't know that that's all bad, mm -hmm. okay? As a mom, as a non-traditional student, you know, I need those courses I can get to in the middle of the night sometimes, yeah. okay? So I'm not saying that that's bad per se. And then we have the camp that looks at online as a, a way of being, as a way of thinking, digital thinking. Um, and this is where I live most of the time, where we're talking about knowledge as a dynamic creative process, knowledge as something that's being negotiated from all different places. You know, we look at opportunities for serendipitous learning, you know, and, and the, the digital way of life. And that there's the argument that those, that courses need to focus on um, living in the digital way of life. Well, what if we could mix and match some of these things, or what if we could have, just like we have a service learning designation for courses, what if we had a digital learning designation for courses? This is where we're going to think digitally, we're going to explore the open web, we're going to do all of these things. And of course, there are a lot of people that argue that that's the way all courses should be. And that's where I get controversial with my friends, right, mm -hmm. is because I have lived in the medical world. I do know there are some courses where you need to just practice putting in that IV and you do need to have content delivered. And I can't believe I said that on record because, um, yeah, that's a controversial statement, what I just said. But I think there's room for everything and we need to do a better job of embracing the fact that we need everything and bringing everyone to the table and respecting where everyone's coming from. And most of the time, everyone can mix it all up together. But there are going to be certain times where it needs to be one way and certain times that needs to be other ways. And that's okay. And I guess that's my point behind the learning objectives. There are some times and some places where it needs to be specific and measurable. There are other times and places where they need to inspire love and joy and understanding. And quite frankly, most of the time, it needs to be a mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. And you need to have multiple levels of learning objectives within a course. But there's room for everyone. Yeah, my son is sick right now and just took him to the doctor. And while we were there, I was surprised because <laughs> I had actually been to the doctor the other day <laughs> and tried to get a flu shot while I was there. They would not give me a flu shot for the reason of why I was there. Like, you can't come in with issue and then also try to while you're there just you know quick stop <laughs> take care of two things so I thought they would tell me the same thing with him in fact I my husband had just asked will you take a picture of the flu shot clinic information so that he could plan on when he would bring the kids in I said sure mm -hmm. and I asked them and he said oh it's not up yet but we could actually give your son a flu shot today if you wanted and I was like 
I love that. <laughs> like, I was surprised that they that they let it. But the reason I bring it up is that the nurse came in, and this is a nurse that we haven't met before. At least I haven't, and didn't know my son. And my son's just like he's really a really super brave kid. And I was hoping that would be treated as a brave kid, but instead she's like, "Oh, could you hold his arm and hold it?" And I understand like they probably have a lot of kids that freak out, but her having me like sandwich his knees between my legs and all this was making him think something terrible was going to happen when I had just told him as a flu shot, you're just going to feel a little pinch. So it's um, anyway, the reason I bring it up is that what you're saying about any field, it isn't just it is so important to be able to give that flu shot. And to administer it quickly, regardless if you're talking about an adult or a child. And then you also need to be able to read people Mm -hmm. and not be creating fear where fear didn't exist in the first place. And it's just, I mean, every profession has that kind of nuance. So I love what you're talking about is a blend of all of these things coming together. And then what we said earlier, but bears repeating, we need to leave enough room for learning that emerges in the moment. Mm -hmm. And... I recently had someone write in and I I wrote a blog post, which I will link to in the show notes about how do you catch up? You know, I'm teaching this class and oh my gosh, the test is coming. How do I catch up? And I did give some advice on how to catch up, but I also said, do a little bit of journaling so that you can think about not doing that again the next time. Because ideally we do leave enough room for stuff that emerges and learning is messy and people are unique and distinct and have varied interests and they'll want to apply what what it is that they're discovering in some different ways. So I think leaving enough openness to do that. Yeah, leaving and filling in the blanks on the learning objectives. So maybe you have 10 and you've got three fill in the blanks. I mean, I think so many times those learning objectives are just a checkoff. It's what you're doing while you're designing the course. It's not part of the living experience. Nobody reads learning objectives. I I read the learning objectives now. As a student, I did not read learning objectives unless somehow it was going to help me study for the exam, right? So this idea of seeing them as a negotiation or what needs to happen in the course, something that students agree with or don't agree with, and we can have a conversation about to a certain extent, you know, revisiting those learning objectives and helping students have some insight on what you're doing through the course and why and how it matches up with these learning goals and objectives that you had in advance. Um, Talking to the students, like, is this working? Um, Do you feel like you can do these things? If not, then how do we, how do we fix it? Or, you know, what else have we achieved in the course and adding them on as Mm -hmm. other learning objectives? Um, so actually leaving spaces for the students, for, for learning objectives to actually emerge. Mm-hmm. And then looking at it at the end, as far as being a celebration, did we do these things together? Did we actually manage to to push our collective knowledge? And that goes for the faculty member as well. We all learn when we teach. You know, and having a party for your learning objectives. <laughs> that actually sounds fun. I think we should do that. (laughs) Where do you see the importance or do you see an importance between learning objectives from one course and then where they intersect with other courses within a program? So that's interesting because a lot of the courses that I'm working with now are part of programs that actually have program level objectives. And so I actually think that's nice because when you're building a course, you actually have to map it back to the program level objectives. And so from an alignment standpoint, I think that's important. But from a 
practical standpoint, I think we need to keep bringing them up. I mean, having them at the beginning of the syllabus is not enough. It, it needs to be an ongoing conversation with students at the larger picture of what exactly are we trying to achieve, not just in this course, but in your multi-years here, or how does this fit into your life, your life goals? It'd be kind of fun to have students have life goals, and then there are program goals, and then there are course goals, and actually having conversations around how they fit in together. I mean, something like that would be a great sort of underlying project for like a program blog, like where, you know, like a domains of one one's own sort of situation where students um, have their blog post coming into a program or blog coming into a, to a program and then they're blogging through their courses, between courses at the end, how do their life goals, the program goals and the course goals align or do they? Where, what have you found to be particularly inspirational to you as you have have you, well, actually, have you evolved your, your thinking about learning objectives over your teaching career? <laughs> Has that changed over time? Or, or are there places you go to look for to draw inspiration to keep you growing and challenge your own thinking about learning objectives? Well, you know, I keep changing fields. And that works. <laughs> it works. That works really well for getting multiple perspectives. I mean, I think I, I think that in a lot of ways I've bounced around from one extreme to the other, as a lot of learners do as they go through their their personal journey. Um, you know, I've started with learning objectives being a, a means to get to the end. You know, I want very specific learning objectives. This is what I need. And then I bounced into the entirely different area of everything needs to be emergent. And now I'm very much in a pragmatic Kind of, I think it's more nuanced area of seeing how these things play out across different disciplines and understanding that there's a place for everything. And honestly, if there was more crosstalk, if there's more respect for the different levels and an understanding that there's different levels. I think a lot of times people who are focused just on the assessment level or the Bloom's level or like that, what I would consider to be a more concrete yes somewhat problematic in terms of um, depth or nuance if they understood that there were bigger goals at play that were probably more important. And then if the people who focus on those more abstract levels were like, look, we do need to evaluate. We do need to assess. We do need to understand what's going on. If, we could, if they could get rid of some of that mistrust that has built up um, around assessment and move through that and understand that the the measurable stuff is important too we could all get together um <laughs> and this looked more like a, a nuanced complex give complex sort of give and take relationship i think it could be kind of magical so that's kind of where i am right now um, and I got there again from bouncing around from job to job, from discipline to discipline, to uh, having conversations with people all over the map. One person who's really been inspirational to me, not just in this area, but I would say more broadly just in designing learning experiences is Sean Michael Morris. And yes. when I had him on the podcast, we got into a conversation about learning analytics and some of the ethics behind that and he really resists it and 
don't doesn't think it's fair to students. And I, I mean, he's so articulate, I can't even hope to do justice to him other than to say, go listen to that episode. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I had said was that I find it helpful to have those learning, uh, learning analytics, just to be able to make note of, oh, I should probably check in with that student that it helps inform me to become a more caring person, because I might not notice. I'm not one of those that that just would notice that Johnny hadn't you know, contributed to a, something in a while. You know, I, I appreciate that as information, but then wish it would just then go away. I mean, I don't want it to track people for the rest of their lives to be affected because they didn't show up to, you know, a particular course or what have you. But what I found so helpful about that conversation was it was six months or more after that conversation. And we were on a virtually connecting session together. He was the, one of the guests who's being showcased and I was just there online participating. I don't know how to explain it. It's if you've never been in a virtually connecting session, I I, I was not, I was the audience. I wasn't the, the show, if that that makes Mm -hmm. any sense, but he actually brought up his feelings about it, but then said, Oh, and Bonnie brought this up and it was such an important point of how she uses that and I thought, oh my gosh, first of all, how does he even remember that? <laughs> but second of all, just the the ability to have those more nuanced conversations, like you said, and let somebody else stretch your thinking. I just really respected him because he's such a brilliant educator, yet that he would have his mind be stretched in, in a way that must have been, you know, semi-permanent since it had been so long since we had discussed it. I really found that profound and I really do wish we had more conversations like that about learning objectives and other topics in teaching and learning. Well, and so much about learning analytics, in many ways, it's a similar conversation to the conversation about learning objectives. And ultimately, I think it goes back to making sure you understand what you're doing and why. You know, why is it important to know if Johnny is contributing to a discussion board every week? Is that really important? Why does it, what, what's going on? And if the important point is I need to check in on these analytics to make sure that Johnny's okay, I, I don't know any educator who would argue against that. Like that's what should happen. But if you're using it to say, well, Johnny only participated two times, so that's a C plus. Well, that's problematic. Because I, I don't even know what that means, right? So it's about, you know, I, I have a friend in institutional research who talks about this idea of it's not about measuring as much as defining what you're trying to measure. And that that's, that's where the hard work comes into play is understanding what are we trying to understand, there's that understand word. Yeah. That's the under, that's a key word for the day is understand. Yeah. But it's it's about understanding why you're doing things and um, struggling with it and critiquing it and bringing in different perspectives on it versus just getting the numbers from the analytics and saying, well, the analytics say this, or I'm going to buy this program because it has analytics. That's never a good idea. Yeah. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. I wanted to recommend that people read James Lang's, a recent column in the Chronicle of Higher Education. He titled it, A Welcoming Classroom. And I really liked this a lot because a lot of times I see us as faculty sometimes talking about disabilities or accommodations as something that's part of our labor and our work and 
even I see some faculty go as far as to be irritated by those things. And I loved his title, A Welcoming Classroom. And wouldn't we all want our classrooms to be welcoming for everyone? And I just wanted to read his closing here, but also encourage you to read, come and read the whole thing on the Chronicle, which I'll link to in the show notes. But he says, I hope we can agree as a universal principle in the creation of college courses that we all want students to feel welcomed and to have equal opportunities to succeed in our courses. If we begin our course design with that simple plea in mind and keep it at the forefront of our deliberations and debates about accessibility, we can help lift the weight of requesting accommodations from the backs of students who already have been asked to bear significant burdens in the pursuit of learning. In doing so, we are more likely to help all students succeed. And wow, it's a powerful post. Highly recommend people check it out. And then the other one is a request to go read a post that I was invited to share on a journal that is a student, graduate student run journal at the University of Texas at Austin. They have a journal called Flow, and it is on media. They're they're attempting to re- define what flow is because it used to be predominantly about television broadcasting and, and in that particular medium and now they're trying to broaden it so I understand they invited me because of the podcasting element as one way that they can stretch what does it what does media mean and 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 redefining that so I wrote a post called the transformative power of podcasts I talked a little bit about how podcasting is changing in general with the advent of podcasts like serial which was just completely exploded the idea of what's possible with podcasts and another one I'm very fond of called S-Town. And then I talk a little bit about how my teaching has been transformed through podcasting and suggest everyone go take a look at that. And I'll pass it over now to you, Laura, to share yours. Well, I went in an entirely different direction. Yours is deep and very meaningful. <laughs> I, I went in the direction of life hacks because, ah. you know, a lot of us, a lot of us teachers are also writers um, and sometimes we struggle as far as how to get our thoughts out. So I don't know about you, but I get them all stuck in my head. And it's like, how do I spit it out? And I have two different two different things that help me. The first is Twitter. Like there have been so many times where I have this like like deep thought. I'm very passionate about it. I'll actually run it through Twitter. And in the the Twitter chat that you're talking about with all the controversy around learning objectives, that really started because I needed help with phrasing around a statement. And I find that having those 140 character boxes helps me as far as phrasing what I need to phrase. So a lot of times when you see me like put out these statements about digital education or open education or philosophy, it's because I'm literally trying to phrase my thoughts and find a way to do it better. And it's amazing because most, the most times I'm being quoted, it actually comes from thoughts that I created through Twitter. And then the, the supplement to that thought is I just downloaded Grammarly needed to for a job. There's a job that I'm doing where people, where they wanted me to run everything through Grammarly. And so it, you think it's just spelling and grammar check, but having that across all of my platforms, it's checking my tweets, it's checking my email. It's actually making me more careful as far as my phrasing, as far as making sure that my punctuation is right. It's actually turning me into a better writer. 
<laughs> Sounds like it could make us better writers too. I love it. Thank you so much for those recommendations. And Laura, thank you for your second time investing your time on the show. And I just love how you think about things in a more nuanced way and wanting to have healthier conversations that ultimately lead to better teaching and better learning. So thank you for all of that. I did want to mention one quick thing that since we last spoke, you have redesigned your website and really thought through in terms of your own identity, how that's being shaped by your professional work. And so I'd encourage people to go to the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 174 and go check out Laura's website. I found it, I bookmarked it because I found it just, it's always helpful when someone's done that work on identity and then expressing that in their blog and website. So it's really worth taking a look if you have, even if you saw it before, go back and check it out again. Or if you haven't ever seen it, it's worth going and taking a look. And just thanks again for your time. Thank you. And I did not run it through Grammarly. I probably <laughs> should go back and run it through Grammarly. But if you see grammar mistakes, don't blame Grammarly. Okay. Oh, okay. That was, that was all me. <laughs> thanks again, Laura. Okay, thank you. Thanks once again to Laura Gogia for being back on Teaching in Higher Ed today for episode number 174. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly updates, you can get the links that we talk about in each of the shows and follow up on resources like the James Lang article I mentioned, my article on the transformative power of podcasts and other resources that we discuss. And you'll also get an article in that same email about teaching or productivity. So go ahead and go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe if you have yet to subscribe. And if you have yet to rate or review the show on whatever service it is you use to listen to it, that helps other people discover it. But so does just sharing it with your colleagues. And thanks for listening. I really enjoy being a part of a community with all of you. And I'll see you next time. Bye.